my dear brethren and sisters and class members, we commence this evening with a consideration of the last four verses in chapter 6 and then commence our early instigation into the uh, seventh, seventh chapter. But before we do that, we'd just like to mention one thing in regard to this seventh chapter. And that is that it is a chapter that we may feel that we're familiar with because it deals with Yahweh's covenant with David. But in actual fact, if you pause to think about it, what we're familiar with in the seventh chapter are verses 12, 13, 14 and 15. And I venture to suggest that most of us are not too familiar with the rest of it. And the reason why I mention that is because sometimes if we hear a comment made that there will be a talk given on the 2nd of Samuel chapter 7, we'd be inclined to say, oh yes, we're familiar with that. But in actual fact, until we examine the chapter and go through it as carefully as we are able, we will not really be familiar with that chapter. And therefore, what we want to point out is that in our study of this 7th chapter, we're going to find that it's one of the most illuminating and encouraging chapters that we will read in the life of David particularly when we get to the latter section of it and we see David's wondrous reaction to the great goodness of Yahweh in the promises that were made. We have another reason for mentioning that as well. You know, in many passages of the scripture, there are certain verses in a chapter that we always know where to find. We know where to put our hand on. Uh, very often they may deal with a subject such as the Trinity or proving that we don't have an immortal soul or something to do with the supernatural devil and providing an answer to that, and so forth. And we learn about these verses, and whenever occasion requires, we trot them out, we know exactly where to put our finger on them, and we go to those verses in that chapter. But you know, very often when we do that, and we think we're familiar with those verses, when we actually come to examine those verses in their context, and by that I particularly mean perhaps a study on the entire chapter wherein those verses occur, we find not only that we are right to use them to prove the point that we usually use those verses for, but what we find is that they have a far deeper and a far more profound meaning in the context of the rest of the chapter than we had previously realised. So we want to be sure that we study the second of Samuel chapter 7 with that attitude in mind, knowing that we're going to learn a lot more about verses 12, 13, 14 and 15 than perhaps we may have known before, but in any event they will become more powerful to us in the context of the whole of this chapter. And when we see David's reaction to the great goodness of Yahweh in what he has done for him here, we will be exhorted and encouraged indeed. So with those thoughts as an introduction, we turn to verse 20, which is, uh, we ended our last class with the conclusion of the 19th verse. And you'll recall that we made the comment uh, to the effect that because religious worship was virtually unknown on any communal scale in the days when Saul occupied the throne, uh, this was a site for Michal, David's wife, to observe that she certainly was not used to seeing. And her father had left her a very tragic inheritance in that she had not been educated in the things of the truth for the simple reason that her father, Saul, had not been a spiritually minded, genuinely pious man. He had not been brought up in the truth. 
as we saw at the very beginning of our study some years ago, when we first began the study of the life of David, we saw that Saul came from a family that was a very wealthy family, had standing in the community and so forth, and uh, they were used to the high standing in the community, exercising their wealth and their influence and so forth. But when Saul came to meet Samuel for the very first time, who was the most prominent religious leader of the day and known far and wide throughout the land to those who had an eye for things that were spiritual, Saul didn't even recognise who he was. Didn't know him. Which meant, of course, that Saul was not used to going to the meeting. Certainly he was not used to going regularly to any spiritual activity. And that is the terrible heritage that he left his daughter so that when she comes to a situation here where with a spiritual minded attitude and educated in the things of the word she would have felt humbled and joyful to observe David in what he does here in verse 20 and she would have really appreciated that but because she did not have a spiritual mind she reveals the family trait of being vain and proud and being resentful of deep spiritual mindedness in somebody else. And here, of course, it is in her own husband. And so in verse 20, we find that David returned to bless his household. And Machal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants, as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovered himself. And most of the early part of that verse we considered. We look at the last comment that she makes here today, uh, on, the, on the day uh, that this uh, incident occurred, as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovered himself. The word vain there is the common Hebrew word that really means empty. And when you consider what she is saying here to her husband, you're acting like one of the empty fellows. It's a term expressive of the utmost contempt. And so the Jerusalem Bible renders it in this way. What a fine reputation the King of Israel has won himself today, she said, displaying himself under the eyes of his servant maids as any buffoon might display himself. That was her anger, but also an illustration of her spiritual blindness. Who was Mikhail to issue such a strong and bitter rebuke to her husband? But you see here, it was more than an outburst of contempt. Because in the first of Chronicles chapter 15, and at verse 29, we read that she despised him in her heart she had no real love for David and therefore she had no real love for the things that David stood for and therefore she had no real love for the truth in her heart she despised him in her heart and no doubt David was quite taken aback at this outburst from his wife and verse 21 says that David said unto Michal 
It was before Yahweh which chose me before thy father and before all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of Yahweh over Israel. Therefore will I play before Yahweh. You see, this was David's simple answer. He doesn't say to her, you are a foolish woman. You have no right to speak to your husband in that way. He makes sure that she understands that he had not been acting as a buffoon or a clown or an entertainer. He had not been acting out of mere show, but had been demonstrating his joy before Yahweh. So he wanted her to understand very clearly that there was nothing fleshly about his actions or what he was doing. And so the Jerusalem Bible renders this part of David's reply in this way. I was dancing for Yahweh, not for them. In other words, not for the people, not for the maidservants particularly, showing off in front of all the young women, nothing of the kind. That was a fleshly motive she attributed to him. And there was no way that this woman could appreciate what David was saying to her because she did not have a spiritual mind. And David here could have very easily yielded to her bitterness for the sake of peace. He could have adopted a very belligerent attitude toward her or he could have adopted a conciliatory attitude toward her for the sake of peace within the family. But he does neither of those things he firmly states that which was the truth, that in this incident Yahweh might be exalted. Now that is the way in which David handled this matter. And notice he points out to her something that needed to be, she needed to be reminded of, that Yahweh which chose me before thy father and before all his house. When he uses the word before there, he means above in the sense of in preference to. And you'll notice he adds also all his house because by the right of inheritance Saul's firstborn should have been the next king or failing him the secondborn or the thirdborn or whichever one should survive. So what David is reminding her is that Yahweh had rejected the entire house of Saul and had transferred the throne from the tribe of Benjamin to the tribe of Judah. Yahweh which chose me before thy father and before all his house. Saul had been rejected by Yahweh because he did not have the disposition that David did. And David is reminding his wife of that fact. And Saul, like his daughter here, had really affected a, a, a pomposity and a snobbishness that they felt ought to be associated with royalty and the wealth that they had. And therefore she saw David as demeaning himself before all the people. But let's notice what we have here in verse 22. David continues, And I will yet be more vile than thus, and will be base in mine own sight, and of the maidservants which thou hast spoken of, them shall I be had in honour. What he means there is, of course, that there were maidservants there and women watching this procession of the ark being brought up to Jerusalem 
who would have the perception to see the significance of the ark and to see the significance of the reverence but also the joy and gladness with which David treated that ark as representative of Yahweh's presence in the midst of the nation. So the Jerusalem Bible renders verse 22, I shall dance before Yahweh and demean myself even more. In your eyes I may be base, but by the maids you speak of I shall be held in honour. See how beautifully he makes that point. And in every word all the way through, he is upholding the principles of divine worship. He is preserving reverence for Yahweh and for a reverential approach toward Yahweh. And if those people, and particularly the maidens of whom his wife had spoken so scathingly, if they understood and they loved the truth, then, as Michael did not of course, then they would be spiritually at one with David. There was nothing carnal about this in any way whatever. And of course David now realises that the one thing he does not have with his wife Michal is oneness of mind in disposition and in an attitude toward the truth. And so the final word concerning her is recorded in verse 23. Therefore Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child unto the day of her death. And you see, what it's telling us very soberly is that Yahweh's blessing does not rest upon those who reject him. And there's the earlier affection that had been at least basically evident between these two as husband and wife. As that had now disappeared and this phrase also be, uh, seems to be implying that from this time on all marriage relationships between the two cease to be. And there is of course a terrible tragedy, not only for the state of their marriage relationship, but because of the fact that if she had observed the spiritual attitude of her husband, of David, from the time they were married, if she had learned from him, if she had realised that he was an example of a man of faith serving his God in good times and bad, and up until this point David has seen far more bad, difficult times than he has seen good times. If she had seen that, observed him, watched him, learned from him, seen his spiritual mindedness, his attitude of selflessness, of putting Yahweh first and humbling himself before his God, she could have become a wonderful woman in the truth and ultimately gained an eternal inheritance in the kingdom. But she despised it. So there's something there for all of us, isn't it? Not just for sisters, not just for women, not just for young ladies, but for all of us. And so in summary to this chapter, it is needful that we consider at the end of this chapter what David has now achieved since becoming king over all the united tribes. We noted the other night that he had defeated the Philistines and therefore warfare ceased from the land. He had gained control over the city of Jerusalem. 
as required by his understanding of Deuteronomy 12 and verse 5. And he has now installed the ark in the city of Jerusalem so that here is the place where Yahweh has put his name. And we remember some of those words from Deuteronomy 12 and verse 5 where Yahweh had said to Moses, Unto his habitation shall ye seek, and thither thou shalt come. And the ark was there for that purpose. Unto his habitation, Yahweh's habitation, shall ye seek, and thither shalt thou come. And David understood that, and he understood that which it represented, and that which it typified, and that which it pointed forward to. And all of that is found, the key to it all. David's conception of what all these things stood for in regard to the coming of the Messiah in glory and triumph to rule over Israel in place of David, to establish the kingdom, to rule over the nations of the earth. And it's all there in Psalm 132. David put it there under divine inspiration. And so it was not simply an act of religious fervour that made David want to, uh, to do this. It was not re- merely a matter of making Jerusalem the centre for both religious and civil affairs. Not at all. David's primary concern was to direct the nation back to those ideals set down in the law of Moses and in the promises made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They lived under the law but they lived in hope of the fulfilment of the promises. David was surely aware, as were all faithful men and women throughout those ages under the Mosaic dispensation, they were all aware that they would never gain eternal redemption upon the principle of the law. The law was just and holy and good, as Paul says. They knew that and they strove to live by it, but they knew that their hope of eternal redemption lay in the fulfilment of the promises that salvation is by grace through faith and that not of yourselves as Paul says in Ephesians 2 and verse 8. So you see David's objectives and his motives were far more reaching than the average person would probably discern simply reading the Bible for the sake of reading it. He wanted to get that nation unified and he wanted to get them back to the ideals of divine worship that had existed prior to the establishment of the monarchy with respect for the law of Yahweh as delivered to Moses and respect for the covenants of promise. Not realising, of course, that he was so close here to receiving one of the most wonderful promises ever made to any of mankind. So during the reign of Saul, it had been Saul who had been dominant in the nation. Not Yahweh, not the religion of Israel, not the law, not the priests. As it should have been, the priests and the wise men, the counsellors, working in harmony with the king for the unifying of the nation, their spiritual education the implementation and maintenance of sound principles of divine worship. There was none of that when Saul was king. And so now all that is about to be changed. David would now see 
that that proper balance in Israel's life and their unity would be, would be re-established. He would elevate Yahweh in the nation, making him higher than the king himself. He would teach the people reverence for God and respect for the priesthood and respect for the law and the covenants of promise. So with the nation established under David's rule upon a sound religious basis, Yahweh gave them rest, which they had never known in the days of Saul. If we keep a hand where we are in the uh, sixth chapter there and go just briefly to the first of Chronicles, chapter 23, we'll see what David says here concerning his understanding of what Yahweh had done for them in the first of Chronicles, chapter 23 and uh, at verse 25. For David said, Yahweh Elohim of Israel hath given rest unto his people that they may dwell in Jerusalem forever. And it may well have been that way if they had continued in the way that, that David had established things. And there is the reference to it all of Jerusalem the centre for divine worship. Again we make reference to Psalm 132 and verses 13 and 14 in particular, and as they appear in the Revised Version, where Yahweh says, This is my resting place forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired. This is my resting place forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired. And Psalm 132 is a type of the time when Christ and the multitudinous Christ body who are all typified together in the ark will enter the new Jerusalem when the temple has been built when the gates shall be raised up to receive the king of glory and in all of that David saw the fulfilment of what was yet to come and you know in all of this it's very interesting to remember but David had done these things very much under the guiding hand of Samuel. Samuel's influence in David's life is far greater than the record shows. We remind you again, if we haven't looked at it before, of the first of Chronicles chapter 9 and verse 22, which speaks of the temple, but it speaks volumes really concerning the relationship between these two men. Although in the narratives of Samuel we find very, very little to indicate to what extent this was so. But here is what we have in the first of Chronicles chapter 9 and verse 22. It's, it's outlining the work of the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the priest and so forth from the, from the early days, uh, the priesthood uh, and so forth are mentioned here, the keepers of the gates of the tabernacle. All of these things were worked out well before the temple was ever built. But verse 22 tells us, all these which were chosen to be porters in the gates were 212. These were reckoned by their genealogy in their villages whom David and Samuel the seer did ordain in their set office. Now that's the only clue that we've got to tell us that in the midst of all David's trials and persecutions and sufferings at the hands of Saul, 
that he found time, probably a great deal of time, to sit down with Samuel and to work out the form of worship and the orders of priests and porters and gatekeepers in the house of Yahweh when it would be built, even though David himself would not build it. And you see there that David, although described for us in the scriptures as a man after God's own heart, with all that spiritual development in himself, he saw Samuel as a wise, faithful man of God. He saw him as a prophet and a seer. He saw him as a man to turn to for help and for guidance. And David had gone to Samuel to seek his guidance and his wisdom. And there is the example of someone like David seeking wise counsel from a brother who is older, more experienced, able to help him and willing to do so. And so there was David in that situation. And having done these things and planned these things in association with the wise hand and the wise guidance rather, of Samuel. And as we see the ark now come to Jerusalem, we ask ourselves the question, well, where is the ark today? We may say, well, the ark has gone out of existence. It's probably lost forever and will never be seen again. But that's not the question. The question is, where is the ark today? And the answer is that it still exists. And it dwells in private homes like the home of Obed-Edom in homes where Yahweh and his word is received with reverence and with joy. And so that is the note upon which that sixth chapter concludes. And now in chapter 7 it goes on to tell us that it came to pass when the king sat in his house and Yahweh had given him rest round about from all his enemies that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of Elohim dwelleth within curtains. Of course, it says that David has rest. Yahweh has given him rest. We need to remember in regard to that first verse that there was still a great deal of warfare before David, which we will see particularly in chapters 8, 9 and 10. So we must understand that statement in verse 1 as implying rest from internal enemies within the land over which he now ruled. We made mention earlier in our remarks tonight that with the defeat of the Philistines, all warfare against Israel and incursions into the land had now ceased. So this is what it's speaking of here. So if there is a chronological connection between the end of chapter 7 and the commencement of chapter 7, it means that sometime after David had brought up the ark to Jerusalem and having uh, given some thought and consideration as to th the thing that should be done in regard to the ark, he made this decision. The king says unto the prophet, I dwell in an house of cedar, but the ark of God, the ark of Elohim, dwelleth within curtains. So here is Nathan upon the scene. And you know, we, we know nothing of Nathan's origins. Apparently he became known as the king's friend because that warm and very intimate title is given to one of his sons. 
appears to be one of his sons anyway, in the days of Solomon. He's mentioned in the first of Kings, chapter 4, and at verse 5. And it seems that this was a title of considerable uh, honour to be known as the king's friend and was bestowed upon one who was close and intimately associated with the king. In the second of Samuel chapter 15 and verse 37 and again in chapter 16 and verse 16 it's used of uh, Hushai who was a wonderful man of faith and a very close friend of, of David. But so far as Nathan is concerned we know that he appears later in the narrative to accuse David of his great crime with Bathsheba when he was summoned by Yahweh to go before David and say, Thou art the man. But you know, he appears to have remained not only close to David, but very faithful and very loyal as well. And at the birth of Solomon, it was Nathan who came to David and announced that Yahweh had said that the child should be called Jedidiah, which means beloved of Yahweh. And it was also Nathan, together with Bathsheba, in the closing days of David's life, who secured the kingdom for Solomon, because they knew that was the way it had to be done. And also we find that Nathan assisted Solomon at his inauguration as king. That's recorded in First of Kings chapter 1. Another interesting thing about Nathan as well is that Nathan, together with Gad, who is another sort of an unsung hero in Scripture of whom we read very, very little, Nathan and Gad, who helped David to reorganise public worship in Israel. And both of those men had been faithful to David and remained so. In the second of Chronicles, chapter 29 and verse 25, we read of that. And it seems also, as we mentioned earlier, Nathan's son, whose name was Zebud, succeeded him as the king's friend, while another son, Azariah, was over the officers during Solomon's reign. So it's very, very interesting to observe here that although we don't know very much about Nathan or his uh, origins, nor do we know very much about his family, but here is represented to us a man and his family who are faithful to the truth. Just one of many, many examples we get in Scripture of brethren of whom we know very, very little. There are not great reams written about them. They're not placed on the, on the record because of heroic deeds they performed necessarily. But they're recorded in Scripture. And though very little is said about them, it reminds us that in our life in the truth, we're not required to perform glorious deeds of valour or scale lofty heights of great attainment in the truth. All that's required of us is that we be faithful in whatever measure Yahweh has given us to exercise that faithfulness. And you know, brethren and sisters, there are going to be a lot of people in the kingdom of God. There are going to be a lot of people who are going to be there, not because of the fame they earned during their mortal life, 
not because of the great things they attained. They were blazing abroad in highlights, but because of their faithfulness. The family of Nathan was like that. So David says to the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. The word cedar there is actually in the plural, cedars, which really implies that many cedars had gone into the construction of David's royal household. And he felt himself to be rather well placed in regard to these sort of things and wished to do something for Yahweh in return, which of course was a most commendable spirit since it implies that David knew only too well from whence came all his blessings. And he says, here I am dwelling in a house of cedars, a rich house, a comfortable house, perhaps a luxurious house. I need to do something to show my respect for Yahweh and his presence in the nation for the ark in our midst. And so, like David, we need to never forget the goodness and the blessings that come from Almighty God. Every day to remember that. Every day to remember that if it were not for the blessing and the goodness of God, we would not arise in the morning to even draw breath, let alone have the things that we have from day to day, whether it be much or whether it be little. It is all from God. So he says, notice here, but here I am dwelling in a house of cedars, but the ark of Elohim dwelleth within curtains, which is a way of saying it was in a tent. In other words, not a permanent temple, a permanent place of glorious residence. And you see, one of the dangers of prosperity and well-being in this life is that it tends to make us self-sufficient. It tends to make us perhaps not as depending or as trusting upon God as we should. And that's very important to us today, brethren and sisters, because we live in a totally materialistic age. We live in the most materialistic age, the most hedonistic age in all human history. And really, when God's servants begin to become a little self-sufficient, to sort of fall into that way of thinking, well, it doesn't matter what morning I get up in the week or the month or the year, there'll be food in the refrigerator, there'll be food in the pantry, there'll be clothes in the, in the cupboard or in the wardrobe, there'll be a roof over our heads, there'll be money coming into the bank every week. That's a form of self-sufficiency, which is really a form of pride in a sense that we're not giving Yahweh the honour and we're not showing our dependence, our total dependence upon him in all things. And so therefore we must not allow our senses to become dulled to the reality that we depend upon our God for every single thing we have. The smallest of blessings, the greatest of blessings. And to remember to thank him for those blessings as they come upon us, to remember day by day to place ourselves in his care, ask for his 
guidance and direction in the affairs of our life throughout the day. Confess ourselves willing to be guided by him in whatever circumstances he provides for us. That's what David is doing here. And so in verse 3, Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in thine heart, for Yahweh is with thee. Very rash. Very rash. It was certainly true that God had been with David. No question about that. There's an abundance of evidence to that effect and we've seen that in our studies over the course of the time that we have been studying this man's life. Yet in this particular matter, Nathan was more than a little presumptuous. And there's a big, big lesson in that. We can never presume what the will of Yahweh might be in any given matter. We must never ever presume so far as Yahweh is concerned. It is very, very dangerous. It is one thing to ask for guidance and direction. It is one thing to place our own lives and our service in his name in his hands. But it's another thing altogether to presume And you see, Nathan took it upon himself to give David permission to go ahead in regard to this matter. It was an act of rashness. And yet we look at Nathan and he was a wise, intelligent, spiritually minded man. Now if Nathan could make a mistake like that, then how careful we must be. You know, sometimes you might want to do something in the truth in the service of the truth, we might work something out in our own head, in our own mind and say, that's a good idea, let's do that. We just go off and we do it. We don't pray first. We don't put the matter in the hands of Yahweh. We don't ask him for guidance and direction. You see, we have that lesson here, don't we, in verse 3. That's what we must do. That's what Nathan should have done. And he has a very quick awakening to the situation. In verse 4, it came to pass that night that the word of Yahweh came unto Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus saith Yahweh, Shalt thou build me a house for me to dwell in? And this came to Nathan in a vision, as it says in verse 17. And Nathan realised, no doubt with a feeling of some horror, that he had spoken out of turn to David rather than seeking counsel from Yahweh. So God says, Go tell David, Shalt thou build me a house for me to... Because it is very, very important. David's motive had been the purest. You know, sometimes we've heard it said that as long as our motive is right, it doesn't matter what happens. But here's a lesson to show that that's not necessarily so. David's motive was of the very purest. His intention, utterly commendable. We can't say anything else about it. But neither his motive nor his intention was in harmony with the will of Yahweh. And there is the key factor. We need to exercise great care in dealing with Israel's God and to always remember the fundamental principle 
Thy will be done. Thy will be done. Of course, Yahweh never doubted David's integrity in this matter. In fact, in the first of Kings, chapter 8, and at verse 18, Yahweh says there, Thou didst will that it was in thine heart, that is, to build a temple. Thou didst will that it was in thine heart. Notice here what that verse is saying, that Yahweh searches the heart. Another reminder of that. So again we can see here that it is not always doing the great things in life that are pleasing to Almighty God. Remember the words of James. James chapter 1 and verse 27. Pure religion and undefiled, says James, is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Is there anything spectacular about that? Is there anything warranting medals being struck and, and uh, uh, all sorts of honours being bestowed? Pure religion and undefiled is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. You see, it gives weight to what Stephen says also, that the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands. In Acts chapter 7 and verse 48. So you see, God desires to dwell in our hearts that we might do godly things for godly reasons out of godly motives. And that is the way of life and the attitude toward life that has got to be taught in the kingdom age. And we know that Solomon learnt this lesson. One of the things that was passed on to him from his father and David would never have forgotten this because it came as such a shock to him to learn that God simply would not permit him to build the temple. There was a reason for that. We know that. God simply would not permit him to build the temple. But Solomon learnt this point when in the first of Kings chapter 8 and at verse 27 he expressed this concerning Yahweh. Behold, the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have builded. Solomon is there confessing. Don't let anybody think for one moment that I am suggesting that Yahweh as the eternal spirit is living and dwelling in this house, in this temple that I built and that it's big enough to contain him. Solomon confessed, the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have builded. We know, of course, that David was not permitted to build the temple because he had been a man of war. And in the first of Chronicles, chapter 22, and at verse 8, David is told that. The work of the building of the temple was to be undertaken by a man of peace. And in this respect, of course, both David and Solomon typify Christ in regard to the temple. David typifies Christ as a man of war, subduing the nations and bringing peace to Israel and the world, whereas Solomon typifies him as a man of peace, establishing public divine worship and ruling over the nations, having established his kingdom 
in a time of peace. And you know, there is also in that verse an oblique reference to David's limitations because he's a man of Adamic nature. David really needed Yahweh to build him a house. That's what God is going to tell him shortly. God's going to say to him, look, I don't need you to build me a house. That's not necessary. I've never asked for that. But on the other hand, you need me to build you a house. And the promise comes out of that. Verse 12, 13, 14 and 15 come out of that. And you know the word house, very interesting term here. The word occurs no less than 15 times in this chapter. That's one of these little gems of of information that we're going to cull and find from this chapter as we go through it. The Hebrew word bavith, B-A-V-I-T-H, bavith, means a house in the greatest variety of applications but especially in relation to a family house. And notice the latter part of verse 11 for the emphasis that is placed there upon that. So, God says to David through the prophet Nathan, Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. Literally, that should be rendered, I have walked continually in a tent and in a tabernacle. In other words, among his people, Yahweh had never known a permanent abode. Rotherham renders it, but have been wandering in a tent as my habitation. And habitation is better there, rendered habitation as in Rotherham, than the word tabernacle. But have been wandering in a tent as my habitation. That of course typifies today, doesn't it? Where men and women who are represented together with the Lord Jesus Christ in the multitudinous manifestation of God in the ark it's a, it's a wandering, it's, there's no permanent resting place for it yet because we have not yet got to the time of the fulfilment of Psalm 132. So in verse 7, God says, In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not me an house of cedar? Had God ever given a commandment for such a house or a temple to be built? Never. Not at any time. Never. So you see, David, although he has, he has expressed dissatisfaction uh, concerning the then existing arrangements or circumstances for an abiding place for the ark, Yahweh was quite unperturbed about that. So when we worry about divine things, we want to worry about things that Yahweh would be concerned about. We need to be concerned about things that God would be concerned about. The welfare of the ecclesia. The preservation of the purity of the truth. The manifestation of it, understanding for it within our own families, within our own individual lives. So here was another lesson for David to learn and for us also so that we may love God, we may love the truth, we may be zealous for the truth but we must always try to see 
everything as Yahweh sees it. And that is one of the most difficult things in life that we have to do. But it is necessary. We must always try and see things as Yahweh sees it. To do that, of course, we need two things. We need the exercise of prayer and we need to consult the Word of God. The lesson, remember, that David learned in regard to the bringing up of the ark to Jerusalem. And you see, in all of this, we have perhaps uh, uh, an epitome of Paul's words in the second of Corinthians chapter 6 and at verse 16 we're quoting from the book of Leviticus he says that Yahweh says I will dwell in them and that's one reason why Yahweh had expressed no dissatisfaction he hadn't gone for hundreds of years he hadn't gone to anyone in Israel, Moses or Joshua or anyone, and said, look, when you get into that land, once I get you over Jordan, one of the first things you've got to do is to build me a magnificent, glorious temple so that I can be recognised by my people and my presence in a wonderful temple. He had never said that. He was very happy to arrange that as seeing that it was a necessary attribute to divine worship in the nation of Israel and also typified greater things to come that is when David expressed a desire to do this and to achieve this. But Yahweh had never asked for it. His aim and objective is not to dwell within bricks and mortar. But as Paul says, as we just mentioned, in the second of Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16, I will dwell in them. In them, in men and women who were to become manifestations of Yahweh in the day of their probation ever so imperfectly but in the day when faithfulness and loyalty and zeal and selfless dedication are all added up on the divine computer so to speak then there will be the fulfilment of that in the most beautiful and wondrous sense and so in verse 8, we read here now, Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith Yahweh Sabaoth, the militant title of the deity now, Thus saith Yahweh Sabaoth, I took thee from the sheepcote and from following the sheep to be a ruler over my people, over Israel. You'll notice the reference back at the end of verse 7, the words, Whom I commanded to feed my people Israel. Now we go on more with the idea of a servant and a shepherd in verse 8. But look at the words in verse 7, at the end of verse 7, whom I commanded to feed my people Israel. It's got nothing to do with supplying them with their daily bread. The word signifies to tend a flock, to provide pasture for a flock. And that is the spiritual food that would sustain that nation would unify them in the spirit of the truth. A beautiful expression. And so in verse 8, So shalt thou say unto my servant David. This is another very interesting little gem. The common Hebrew word ebed, E-B-E-D, the servant. You might think, well, all right, it says here, So shalt thou say unto my servant David. You know, it's rather interesting 
David was to remember his place. In a sense, he wants to take charge of a situation and say to Nathan, look, I'm going to build a temple for, for Yahweh. What do you say to that? Nathan says, go ahead and do it. David has to remember that he is a bond slave. He is a son of God. He is the powerful, authoritative king of Israel. But for all of that, he is a bond slave to Yahweh. He's dependent upon his God. He must remember his place. And though a son, he was also a bond slave, as we all are. And David acknowledged that. If you make a note of these passages, you'll see where he acknowledges that in verse 20, 21, 25, 26, 27, twice, 28, 29, twice. What's that? Eight or nine times. In other words, he got the message. He understood what Yahweh meant when he said, Thou shalt say unto my bond slave, my servant David, I took thee from the sheepcote. We know that David had very much for which to be humbly grateful. And I don't know how many times in the course of these studies we have looked at Psalm 78, verse 70 to 72, which used this, uses this specific language that David was taken from the sheep coat, from holding and caring for the ewes, heavy with lambs, that he might take David, that he might feed my people Israel, because they were Yahweh's true flock. And you know, this was the most important promise about to be made to David, not only from the long-range eternal aspect of it, but insofar as David's tribe and his personal family line were especially chosen. And remember that Shiloh, who was to bear the scepter, was to come from the tribe of Judah and become the lawgiver in the nation. Genesis 49, verse 10. And so this word, servant, applying to a bond slave, occurs numerous times in the servant prophecies of Isaiah. Remember in chapter 42 and verse 1, Behold, my servant, which is also to be understood as, Behold, my bond slave. Remember how under the law, the man was a slave to a master, and he learned to love that master, when the time for his freedom came, that he could be free from that master, if he loved that master, he could go to that master and say, I wish to remain for life. I will dedicate myself to your service, to hearkening to your voice and your commandments, and I will serve you all the rest of my days until I die. And the servant was to be taken to the doorpost, and the master was to take an awl and bore through a hole in the lobe of the ear signifying obviously that that servant was prepared for the rest of his days to hearken to the voice of the commandment of his master. That's what we are. Lifetime bond servants. Behold my servant. So here is David here as a type of Christ. And you know, it's a rather interesting thing that David certainly understood the significance of this term. But you know, there was one authority that I looked at some time ago and I failed to note down where it was who made a comment and therefore I'm saying this because it would probably need to be checked out. But the comment was made 
in uh, an article that I read somewhere, that no other king in all Jewish history is referred to by this title other than the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly in the servant prophecies of Isaiah. The Messiah to come. So in calling David his servant, it meant that although David was now prevented from building the temple, Yahweh still had a work for him to do. Say unto my servant, David. Say unto my bondslave, David. Does a bondslave do nothing? He's there at the beck and call of his master, whatever it might be. It was another way of also saying to David, you are my bondslave, you are my servant. I've got work for you to do. I've got work for you to do. And David knew in a very short while from here, shortly after this, in words that are spoken to him, that Yahweh has work for him to do, not only during his mortal existence, but through all eternity, through the 1,000 years of the kingdom age. Remember the words of verse 16? And thy house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. And there it is. So with those words, Yahweh encourages David to hearken unto that which he has to say. And he then goes on to tell him that he's going to make him a great name. And there is a remarkable link with the promises made to Abraham. Thy name shall be great. We will go on, God willing, at our next class and consider the wonderful things that are recorded here, not only in what Yahweh promises to David, but in the remarkable reaction of this man who showed his childlike faith in the God whom he worshipped, who accepted without question what God promised him, something beyond the wildest imaginings or hopes of any man to ever hope to receive from anyone that David expresses his humility, expresses his submission to his God and expresses his absolute utter faith in his belief that Yahweh will fulfil all that he has promised. And we ourselves, each one, have got to be just exactly like David in regard to that matter.